So glad to see all of you this morning, and thanks so much for coming. This is the third Sunday of Advent. Advent's the season, obviously, when we're recognizing the coming of Jesus, and today is the Sunday of joy. And I don't know, I feel joyful that you're here. We will be brief today. I'm actually going to do our conversation today mostly from a script. I don't usually do that, but sometimes I get a little animated and I may go a little longer than I had ordinarily planned and to keep us... (laughs) Man. (laughs) Just for that, I'm throwing this... So I'm going to try to keep myself disciplined today. And today... I'm going to talk from the Old Testament book of Ruth. Now, this is a spectacular story that was made for a Hollywood movie. If you have your Bibles or your phone and you can find Ruth, it's a little book, it's a sliver in the Old Testament. It's a story that occurred probably around the 10th century B.C. during the period of the Judges. So this is what that means. Israel had been in Egypt, the children of Abraham had been in Egypt for a number of generations and had been oppressed. They had been led out of Egypt by Moses, had wandered in the desert for a generation, and then had made their way into the promised land. They had established themselves, their presence, and a little bit of national identity in the promised land, but it was mostly a bunch of scattered tribes throughout this little sliver of the Middle East barely clinging together by their common worship of God, and occasionally a charismatic ruler would rise up that would unite two or three of the tribes. Sometimes most of the tribes would be united around this charismatic figure. But it was a period of unrest and uncertainty, and it was also the period before the kingdom got established. So this is the period that we're talking about, and this is the story of Ruth, and this is a spectacular story. I'm going to go through the whole story, and I'm going to cherry-pick parts of it. So I'll cue you in when we come to a reading from Ruth and tell you where we're reading from. If you don't have your Bibles, the readings will be on the screen. So I want you to hear this morning the really powerful and compelling story of Ruth. This past week, Nelson Mandela passed over from our world to the next. In the aftermath, we've all been treated to a litany of media salutes reminding us just how much difference one life can make when the owner of that life is willing to live sacrificially and at full capacity. Mandela once said, there's no passion to be found playing small and settling for a life that's less than the one you're capable of living. This is exactly the lesson from the story of Ruth. Ruth lives big. And as a result, hers is a story of how brokenness and difficulty can be turned into joy and fruitfulness. Today we're going to hear an overview of Ruth's story, but before we finish, we're also going to hear about an unnamed character in the tale. His part in the story is a cautionary one. He he made decisions which seemed safe and sensible at the time, but in the long run, they turned out to be more costly than anyone in the story could have possibly imagined. We'll do well not to miss the warning. But the story centers around Ruth, a young woman whose entire life was radically and permanently changed in the direction of joy and fruitfulness. And unlike our unnamed antagonist, she made a series of courageous and sacrificial decisions, ones which seemed on the surface to be insensible. But these choices, combined with a couple of remarkable 
accidental encounters changed the trajectory of her life for the better. And of course, behind each of those so-called accidents, we see the unmistakable fingerprints of sovereign God. The story, however, begins with a very poor choice. So let me read the opening of the book of Ruth, chapter 1, and I'll read the first couple of verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So, sometime in the 10th century B.C., an Israelite man named Elimelech, along with his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, were living in the famine-riddled region around Bethlehem. Elimelech was a man of standing who owned land in Palestine. This was the land the Israelites believed to be their land of promise. Elimelech and Naomi were living in a period of political and spiritual unrest in Israel, and it was a difficult time financially for the entire region. So at some point, Elimelech and Naomi hear that things were well in Moab's, so they followed the often felt and usually deceptive motivation of grass being greener on the other side, and they decided to move their family to Moab. Now, This isn't exactly like you or I deciding to move from the Chicago area to Washington, D.C. We could serve God equally in both places. We could relate to God's people and to our families, perhaps equally well in Chicago or in Washington. But for Elimelech and Naomi, things were very different. There was no access to Facebook or Skype in Moab. They had absolutely no cell phone reception in that part of the world. They couldn't even transfer money to another account should someone back home need their help. In Bethlehem, Elimelech and Naomi were living among God's people. They were living in the land that God had given after supernaturally delivering them from Egypt. They were living on property which had been protected and nurtured by several generations of Elimelech's Ethrathite ancestors. The property had passed to Elimelech, the oldest son, who was charged by God and by family tradition and by family need to act as a steward both of the land and of his network of relatives. Elimelech and Naomi were living within and among community where they had support, accountability, protection, guidance, and responsibility. They left all that, and they moved to neighboring Moab. Okay, among the Israelites, Moab was known for several things, none of them good. The Moabites, as a people, had originated out of an incestuous relationship between Abraham's nephew Lot and his oldest daughter. They were like distant, unwelcome, unhealthy cousins who had rejected the worship of God generations earlier and I'm from South Carolina. We're familiar with those kinds of cousins. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, in addition, they passed by Moab. And when they did, the Moabite king hired a professional prophet to curse Israel and its future. Plus, their women, the Moabite women, had been a stumbling block to Israelite men during the time of desert wandering, causing them in large numbers to 
leave God and worship false gods. And finally, the, the Moabites had actually oppressed the Israelites periodically and as recently as Elimelech and Naomi's childhood. Forget what they're leaving behind. Does this sound like the kind of place to go raise a godly family? But believe it or not, Elimelech and Naomi made the decision to go solely for the financial opportunity it represented. Imagine making a decision like that. Somehow they convinced themselves that that outweighed all other concerns. Eventually, the sons, Malin and Killian, grow to marrying age, but instead of sending word back to Judah to arrange for wives who know God and worship God, the boys are allowed to marry Moabite women. Now remember, this is a day when marriages are arranged, always. Given this cultural context, marrying a Moabite woman would have been unusual in the extreme, and in the case of this family, they should have known it was unwise. Happily for us, God is able to move in all circumstances, sometimes even through our wrong-headed motivations or even our mistakes. Some of you have heard me say before that I once believed I heard God tell me that one of the most important decisions I had made in my life up to that point was based solely on pride. In fact, literally, that was all pride, is what I thought I heard him say. I was devastated, partly because I honestly thought that decision was the most noble decision I'd ever made. I began to wonder for a while if I should undo the decision. But God gave me a small measure of relief sometime later not exactly complimenting me when he told me what I thought was something like, don't worry, you're in the right place. I used your pride because it's all I had to work with. (laughs) God is able to move in all circumstances, sometimes even through our wrong-headed motivations or our mistakes. And fortunately for us, he does so here. One of Elimelech's boys married a young Moabite woman of real character named Ruth. Ruth grew into a deep level of commitment to her new family, plus she developed a sensitivity to the worship of God. And even though this was not a perfect situation, God used it. After all, God is sovereign. Then after a period of time, Elimelech died. Naomi now is a widow in a foreign culture and in a time that didn't treat widows kindly. After a few more years, it seems... Both of her sons died as well. So, this leaves Naomi destitute, grief-stricken, without hope, or without prospects. Let me repeat. Naomi found herself destitute, grief-stricken, without hope, without prospects, which, in Naomi's mind, would certainly test our assertion that God can move in all circumstances, right? At some point later, Naomi hears that the famine has broken in Judah. So she decides to return. I want you to consider her situation for a minute. Was Israel even her home anymore? She was convinced that God's hand was against her. She had no hope, no means, and no real plans, except that maybe there were relatives back in Judah who might show her compassion. Perhaps out of self-pity or perhaps for noble reasons, Naomi prevails upon her daughters-in-law to forget their duty to their dead husbands and to her. And when she decided to return to Judah she ordered them 
to stay in Moab to return to their mothers and their gods. And on the surface of things, this was very sensible counsel for these young women. Amidst tears, one of them decides to stay behind. As I said, this seemed to be the wise thing to do. I mean, going with Naomi to Judah would have meant not only embracing Naomi's God, but Naomi's future. All that while being a mistrusted foreigner with no claim to family or land or inheritance and most probably without hope of future marriage proposals. This is where one of those courageous sacrificial decisions we alluded to earlier comes into play. And I'm going to read now from the end of chapter 1 of Ruth, Ruth 1.16. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her to stay. So, Ruth moves to a foreign country, and like Terry Eagle moving from Dallas, Texas to Ashburn, Virginia, she must have realized quickly that the natives were not all that friendly. They marvel that Naomi has returned, but they seem to ignore Ruth altogether. On top of that, Naomi, who is Ruth's traveling partner and sole source of support, had clearly slipped into a deep depression. So I'm going to read from the end of chapter 1, beginning with verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told the Judahites who gathered around her. Call me Mara, which is the Hebrew word for bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And I don't mean to make light of Naomi's situation. It was a desperate one. Just to be clear, Naomi's new nickname is Bitter. What in the world has Ruth gotten herself into? No matter how much of a natural Pollyanna Ruth is, it cannot feel like there is a silver lining around any part of this cloud. But at least they've moved to Judah during the harvest season. So, while Ruth is nursing Naomi out of a comatose depression and while she is adjusting to a new unfriendly environment along with learning a new language and while she's working through her own grief and widowhood and singleness, at least there's food. Now Israel had a legal provision set out by Moses that mandated several means by which the poor were to be taken care of. One of those means was that landowners were to leave a part of their fields unharvested so the poor could come behind their workers and collect unharvested wheat for themselves. These provisions were, frankly, often not followed by the Israelites. That's why God often rebuked them for their mistreatment of the poor. And so I imagine whenever a landowner did act generously and left part of his field unharvested, I imagine this would have been well known, especially among the poor. So Naomi may very well have mentioned this practice to Ruth. Ruth would have been impressed and no doubt would have seized this as a first step for she and Naomi. So now let's go to Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. 
Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. As it turned out. Who was from the clan of Elimelech. Okay, we're going to have to look between the lines a little bit here because the author is being somewhat, and I believe intentionally, coy. Here's what happened. Ruth and Naomi needed food, and Ruth needs to get out of the house. She needs to try to make something happen. She's felt sorry for herself long enough, and she's worried Naomi might not ever snap out of this depression. She doesn't know what she can do about that, but she knows she needs to find food. She believes she can take advantage of the Israelite practice of leaving part of their field for the poor, and she believes she's discovered how you make that happen. So she bundles herself up and she walks down to the 7-Eleven in Herndon. She's heard that if she waits there long enough, someone will come and pick her up and take her to a field she can harvest. The first couple of trucks come and go. She misses them because she doesn't speak enough Hebrew and she's not practiced enough at this art to know when or what to look for. Finally, she makes her way onto the back of an unfull truck. She's not sure where she's going, but because there's there's another Moabite woman in the group. This woman tells her that this truck belongs to a man who's good and generous. She tells Ruth that they will certainly be able to work the edge of his field and will be able to come home with all that they need because this man is known to leave the edge of his field for the poor. Here's the thing. That truck and that field belong to Boaz. The good and generous man, it's Boaz. And Boaz just so happens to be a distant relative of Elimelech, the very same Elimelech who was Ruth's father-in-law. Of all the gin joints in all of Israel, Ruth goes to that one. Of course, Ruth is a very hard worker and Boaz eventually notices her. He inquires about her probably with more than a passing interest. Soon he begins to make special provisions for Ruth and the rest, as they say, is history. They fall in love, they get married, and cue the movie music, they create a beautiful life together. Along the way, to get there, Ruth makes another one of those courageous decisions. You'll have to go and read about it. It turns out to be rather risky and a little bit risque, but it ultimately wins Boaz's heart. However, we're still missing an important part of the story. We're still missing an important character, a character who remains unnamed, Israel had another important legal provision which was first outlined in Leviticus chapter 25. It was sometimes called the kinsman redeemer or the guardian redeemer. This provision encouraged the close relative of a deceased married man to marry his widow if he was able. So let's say, for instance, as a young man before I had children, I die. Well, it would have been encouraged of my brother to marry Diane, my wife. Only I don't have a brother. So, the family would have gone to near cousins and looked for an appropriate match, an unmarried man who could marry Diane and be her kinsman redeemer. I said this to Diane last night and she loved me afresh and anew at the thought of marrying one of my cousins. <laughs> this provision allowed for the protection and provision of widows. And it kept families and inheritances and lands intact. Here's the thing. Boaz was a potential kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Ruth. 
How coincidental is that? He was a relative of Elimelech's and therefore of Elimelech's son. So while Boaz seems to be falling in love with Ruth, it was also true that he had a legal claim toward her and she toward him. However, in a twist designed to create Hollywood-worthy emotional tension, there was one who had a stronger claim toward Ruth than Boaz did. There was one of marrying age who was unattached and who had a closer relationship to the widow than Boaz did. And Boaz was a man of honor. He knew that he must allow this man to lay hold of his claim. This is when the entire movie audience groans. I mean, if this movie was made 40 years ago, we would know that everyone would end up being happy at the end. But these days, you never know. The credits could very well roll with a depressed Ruth in the arms of the wrong man, cut to Naomi, who's become addicted to increasingly ineffective pain pills and antidepressants. And while this might get a Golden Globe nomination, fortunately, it's not what happened in our story. So I'm going to read from Ruth chapter 4 and let you hear the end of the story. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word. Meanwhile, Boaz went to the town gate and sat down there just as the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. So the town gate is the place of official business. One of the places of official business. Other things happen, of course, in the town gate. But this is the place of official business in all local communities in ancient Israel, really throughout the ancient Near East. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down, which is more than just, hey, what's up? This is an official invitation to do business at the town gate. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took then ten of the elders of the town, and that was evidently the necessary size for a legal gathering, ten of the elders, and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. After all, He intends to add this land to his own and thus enlarge the size of his inheritance, the inheritance that he can pass on to his own children. This land, it sounds like, is absolutely unencumbered and there are no complications. He can't say yes quick enough. Then Boaz says, By the way, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz has saved this little piece of information until after the man has revealed his hand. Wait. You mean, you mean I, I, have to take, I, have to, I have to take care of the Moabite woman? And mother-in-law, whose nickname is Bitter? At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Um... You know, there, there are encumbrances on my land. There are contract sons in my eyes. Then cannot redeem it because uh, I will endanger my own estate. Yeah, you look really motivated. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. You may be seated. So Boaz does. He redeems the land and Naomi. And so our happy couple rides off into wedded bliss at the end of the movie. We get to see one of those cute 
snapshot montages that often ends movies. You know, the screen reads 10 years later and we see Mr. Unnamed Potential Kinsman Redeemer sitting with his wife. They have lost half their property because of bad investments and they've been unable to have any children. And then the next shot is of Ruth and Boaz. They're surrounded by several healthy children. The oldest child is a son named Obed. Obed shoots a mischievous look at the camera. Ruth and Boaz smile and the lights come up in the theater. We are reminded that God is able to move in all circumstances. We are reminded that He can turn mourning into dancing. We are reminded He can turn darkness into light. He can turn discouragement into joy if we will only choose to live large, to make courageous decisions, to do what's right and honorable, even if it sometimes seems insensible. Now that's a great story. But it's not quite over. For those of you who have checked Google, they know to stick around because there's a scene after the credits. Verse 16 of chapter 4, Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there, they recognize the turn that's happened in Naomi's fate. And they say, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. The father of David. Holy smokes. Ruth, the grief-stricken Moabite woman who had no means, no hopes, no prospects, who made the insensible decision to follow her mother-in-law to a foreign country and to share her mother-in-law's future and her God, this Naomi became the great-grandmother of the king of Israel and an ancestor of Jesus the Savior of the world, the kinsman redeemer of us all, and the potential kinsman redeemer who made the sensible decision to protect his own investments and not to get entangled in the messy story of a young Moabite widow and her bitter mother-in-law. He remains for all time safely and comfortably unnamed. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, we stand on the name of Jesus. Our kinsman redeemer who has bought us back and given us a future who can even this morning turn mourning into dancing and darkness into light and hopelessness into joy and fruitfulness Lord Jesus we are also thankful that for many of us you have changed our names some of us Lord deep in our hearts we're called unworthy or fearful, or unlovable, irresponsible, going nowhere. And this morning we recognize you've called us beloved. You've made us a hero. You've changed our story. First of all, God, we celebrate that. Secondly, we're bold enough this morning to ask you today, today, to strengthen us. For some of us, Lord, our limbs have grown weak and we're tired of taking the next step after the next step. Or Lord, we've gotten overly busy and we've lost track of you, our compass. And we're a little out of kilter. Or Father, maybe for some of us, the circumstances have been overwhelming. The news we've heard, the loss we've experienced, the uncertainty, the death of a dream. God, today, we focus on you. 
because we know that no matter what our circumstance, you can move and you can bring joy and fruitfulness. So today we give our circumstance to you. We are like Ruth, the young Moabite woman. Show us what field to glean and we'll go work. God, I want to ask you in Jesus' name that you will take these truths, Lord, and just the way you moved spectacularly in this story. Lord, don't let us miss it. Use it tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday because we stand on the name of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's in His name we pray. Amen.